Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History, it's your host Joe, and I'm not going to do too much of an introduction today, but I will just say, just uh, as a reminder, the last two episodes we talked about Pickett's Charge, and this one's just going to pick up pretty much right where I left off. And a neat thing I learned this week was that Excuse Me History now has 10,000 all-time plays. So if you add up all the episodes, more than 10,000 people have listened, and I think a play counts as anything longer than 30 seconds. So if you've listened to this podcast for more than 30 seconds uh, in any of the episodes, uh, I really appreciate you, and I just ask you to consider listening for longer next time. Uh, But to all the listeners, if you've listened to any episode, no matter how long, you are appreciated, and I will keep putting these episodes out as long as y'all keep listening. Oh, stop booing. There's nothing wrong with it. There are dozens of us. Dozens! And as always, make sure to like the Facebook page uh, for supplemental information and maps to help follow along with the episode. And go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you are not already. If you listen to the podcast on any app that has uh, a rating system, please rate it five stars or whatever the highest possible rating you can. That really does help out. Especially if you're listening on Spotify, uh, if enough people on Spotify rate it five stars, they give you a public rating, so that would be really cool. And without further ado, let's start the show. Though the soldiers of the two great armies of the East did not know it, July 3rd would mark the last day of major fighting during the Battle of Gettysburg. Pickett Pettigrew Trimble Assault, better known as Pickett's Charge, had failed miserably. Not long after, Farnsworth and Merritt's cavalry brigades failed in their attempt at smashing the Confederate right flank, as discussed in episode 15. A counterattack against Lee's army was at least considered. Yankee skirmishers would probe the Confederate defenses, primarily their right flank. But they were met with stiff resistance. Meade's reserve force was spread out and not concentrated in the right place at the right time. At this point though, as far as offensive operations were concerned, the Army of Northern Virginia was a spent force, but they still had some fight left in them and could wage a defensive battle if necessary. As John S. Lewis, a Mississippi infantryman, wrote in a letter a few weeks after the battle, quote, The whole army charged and was driven back, though the cowards would not charge our shattered lines in turn. The lion they knew was hurt, but not killed." You hear that kind of imagery used to describe the Confederate army a lot after the battle, wounded lion or beast. Certainly the majority of the survivors of Pickett's charge could not be counted on, but Lee still had fresh reserves. Ultimately, the attack never came. Both sides would instead spend the rest of July 3rd picking up the pieces and planning for what would happen next. And there were quite a few pieces that needed to be picked up. A Union soldier would describe the utter destruction that three days of some of the fiercest fighting of the war had produced. Quote, Like sheaves bound by the reaper, in crevices of the rocks, behind fences, trees, and buildings, and thickets, where they had crept for safety only to die in agony, by stream or wall or hedge, wherever the battle had raged or their weakening steps could carry them, lay the dead. Some with faces bloated and blackened beyond recognition lay with glassy eyes staring up at the blazing summer sun, Others, with faces downward and clenched hands filled with grass or earth, which told of the agony of the last moments, here a headless trunk, there a severed limb, in all the grotesque positions that unbearable pain and intense suffering contorts the human form they lay. 
All around was the wreck, the battlestorm leaves in its wake. Broken caissons, dismounted guns, small arms bent and twisted by the storm were dropped and scattered by disabled hands. Dead and bloated horses, torn and ragged equipments, and all the sorrowful wreck that the waves of battle leave at their ebb. And overall, hugging the earth like a fog, poisoning every breath, the pestilential stench of decaying humanity. Unquote. For the veterans of both armies, these were not unusual sights, but the scale of the bloodshed had few comparisons. Sergeant James Wright of the 1st Minnesota Infantry, as seasoned a soldier as any, had this to say afterward. Quote, it is true we were no longer the sensitive, sentimental youngsters we were when we left our northern homes. Mere sentiment had been knocked out of us by the actual experiences of years of active war. Military training and everyday surroundings had tended to repress expressions of feeling and had changed us to seasoned soldiers. But no one, though but moderately endowed with common sense and no more than the ordinary amount of compassion in his makeup, could fail to sympathize, deeply, with the overwhelming amount of suffering that existed and which they were powerless to relieve. Tens of thousands were suffering from wounds, many were dying every hour, and many still living considered those already dead more fortunate than themselves. Unquote. Shortly after the battle ended, it began to rain. In addition to growing darkness and just general exhaustion, the thunderstorm would end any thought of a federal counterattack on July 3rd. Perhaps this summer shower offered some initial relief after the conclusion of a ferocious battle on the hottest day of July in Gettysburg. Men would have been covered with sweat, dirt, blood, guts, and gunpowder. The storm, however, was not received well. Years after the war, Lieutenant Colonel Francis A. Walker, who wrote the official history of the 2nd Army Corps and the Army of the Potomac, recalled, quote, the downpour was in proportion to the violence of the preceding cannonade. The soldiers were drenched in an instant, and sudden torrents swept over the hills as if to wash out the stains of the great battle, unquote. Whatever the short-term relief the summer storm offered was quickly washed away, and it made their lives even more miserable than they already were. Little did they know it would rain on and off almost every day for the next week and a half. It quickly became apparent to the leaders of the Army of Northern Virginia that their offensive campaign was effectively over. Generals Robert E. Lee and James Longstreet inspected their lines and, after a brief consultation, decided that the withdrawal of the army was necessary. This task would be easier said than done. Quite a bit of planning and what would be an incredibly short period of time would need to occur before they could retreat and fall back upon their line of communication. They couldn't just pick up everything and leave. For one, they still faced an army that was superior in numbers and still had fresh troops to spare. Meade was not necessarily an aggressive general, but he was also not overly cautious to the point of self-sabotage, as former Army Commander George McClellan had been. Lee expected some sort of attempt to cut off his army's retreat. In order to put the army into a better defensive position, it was decided that Ewell would move his corps back to the west, giving up the town in the process. They would take up a position on the line stretching from Seminary to Oak Ridge. Longstreet would also move his troops in the far right at Devil's Den, Rose's Wheatfield, and the Sherfy Peach Orchard to fall back to Seminary Ridge and refuse the line on the right in order to protect their flank. Stuart's cavalry would screen both flanks as well. Once the army was consolidated and in line, they would throw up defensive works in case Meade did launch an assault on July 4th. This movement would take place under the cover of darkness and smoke from Confederate fires. Beyond that, moving the army itself was going to be a logistical nightmare. Of course, there was the infantry, artillery, and cavalry that were still in fighting shape, 
But on top of that, they needed to figure out how to care for and transport more than 10,000 wounded soldiers. And last but not least, they also needed to transport all of the supplies acquired through the practice of foraging in Maryland and Pennsylvania. I talked about this many episodes back. Lee's troops combed through every town, every farm, and every general store they could find on their march through Union territory, and that had not stopped during the battle. Obviously, the focus was on fighting, but rebel quartermasters continued picking the town of Gettysburg as well as neighboring farms for anything of use. For example, the quartermaster of Cabell's artillery battalion reported that he purchased some 3,000 pounds of hay during the battle. Citizens of the area later claimed to have lost 800 horses, a dozen mules, a thousand head of cattle, 200 hogs, 400 sheep, 100 wagons, 9 wagon beds, 50 buggies or carriages, and uncountable amounts of flour and other miscellaneous supplies in what amounted to sanctioned theft. Even during the battle, livestock was being driven down the Cumberland Valley and across the river into Virginia. The army still had quite a large number of animals with them that would need to be herded back. Given the task of overseeing the logistics of the army's evacuation were a number of staff officers, quartermasters, medical directors, and surgeons. At the head of the planning were Chief Quartermaster Lieutenant James L. Corley, Army Medical Director Dr. Lafayette Guild, Chief of Ordnance Lieutenant Colonel Briscoe G. Baldwin, and Chief of Commissary Lieutenant Colonel Robert G. Cole. And lastly, exactly what route the army would take needed to be quickly decided upon. After the wagons were loaded, if you stretched them out one after another on the same road, it would be 57 miles long. Like their march into Virginia, multiple routes would be necessary. Captain Jedediah Hotchkiss, the Second Corps topographical engineer and cartographer, was selected to plot the route of escape for Lee's army. Hotchkiss was a native New Yorker, but moved to the Shenandoah Valley in his early 20s where he worked as a teacher and semi-professional mapmaker. He became a teamster for the Confederate Army in 1861, but later offered his services in mapmaking to General Richard Garnett. His talents led him to become a topographical engineer in Stonewall Jackson's command. It was during the early days of the Valley Campaign that Jackson summoned Hotchkiss to his headquarters, and as the mapmaker remembered, Jackson said to him, quote, I want you to make me a map of the Valley, from Harper's Ferry to Lexington, showing all the points of offense and defense in those places, unquote. Hotchkiss's suggestions to the general helped the Confederates in their stunning victory over the Union in the Valley, and Hotchkiss spent the rest of the war creating a map in three separate parts of the entire Shenandoah Valley that was at least seven feet tall and three feet wide. Because of his map-making talents, he was often used by Army headquarters for various tasks. His skills would be relied upon heavily during the evacuation of the Army. After sleeping for a couple of hours, he awoke at 2 a.m. and got to work. The army would be essentially divided into three columns, and would take two basic routes. One column would travel over the longer route, and it would consist of all the wagon trains of the 1st and 3rd Corps, including the ambulances filled with the wounded soldiers. They would move westward along the Chambersburg Pike through the Cashtown Gap across South Mountain, and then turn southward into the Cumberland Valley. The second column would consist of the army reserve trains, as well as most of the trains of the 2nd Corps. The last would be the infantry and the bulk of the artillery. The latter two would travel to Fairfield and then through Monterey Pass through South Mountain. The destination of both routes was Williamsport, Maryland. For most of the year, the Potomac River was low enough to be forded at a few sites, and Williamsport was one of them. The Confederates had also constructed a pontoon bridge two miles downstream of Williamsport at a place called Falling Waters. The parts had been brought up with the army during the early stages of the campaign and constructed, but used sparingly. Now the pontoons would be essential to ensure the safe crossing of the army, especially if the water levels were too high to be forded. 
Dr. Lafayette Guild was given the responsibility of handling the Army's wounded. Guild was a 37-year-old Alabaman and career Army surgeon. He served as an assistant surgeon in the U.S. Army from 1848 until the outbreak of the war. At the time, he was stationed in San Francisco, where he was the medical director of the Army Hospital there. After refusing to take an oath of loyalty to the United States in 1861, he resigned his Army commission and made his way to Richmond. In the spring of 1862, he was named medical director of the Army of Northern Virginia. Guild's job was increasingly becoming a nightmare. The Confederate medical staff wasn't capable of handling so many wounded soldiers. In addition to the thousands of wounded, there were also large numbers of men sick with malaria, typhoid fever, and, our old friend, dysentery. Gettysburg did not have the infrastructure to house all of the wounded, nor the medical supplies to provide proper care. Around 40 buildings behind Confederate lines became hospitals of some sort. By July 3rd, there was hardly a house, barn, or farm building not filled with the wounded and dying. Most were kept outside, as many doctors believed in the theory of miasma, or that bad air was responsible for the spread of disease. Fresh air would help the patients heal more quickly, or at least so thought many doctors prior to the discovery of germ theory. Dr. Francis M. Kennedy, a Methodist minister and chaplain of the 28th North Carolina, wandered Seminary Ridge in search of the hospital of his brigade in vain. He recalled, quote, By some means the medical department was badly managed today causing a good deal of unnecessary pain and trouble to the wounded, unquote. Surgeons, assistant surgeons, nurses, and orderlies went about providing what care they could to the thousands of soldiers that filled their hospitals. Surgeons and assistant surgeons were professional doctors, but everyone else involved in the treatment of soldiers were typically non-combatant members of the army detailed to aid the medical professionals. One such man was Julius Leinbach, a member of the 26th North Carolina's Moravian Band. In his diary, he recorded the awful sights, quote, The yard, road, and field were full of men, some who had been wounded in the first day's fight and had received no attention. A good majority had died there and were still unburied. One man I particularly remember was horrible to look at, having become bloated out of all human shape, unquote. 11th North Carolina Quartermaster Captain George P. Irwin wrote in a letter to his father, quote, I have not been in the fight. I have been looking after our wounded, and a more sorrowful thing I never saw. Poor fellows lying wounded in every conceivable place, and little or no attention paid them. The doctors don't examine a wound unless amputation is necessary, or it is extraordinarily dangerous. In fact, they come in so fast that this is necessary. Some of our boys wounded in the first evening have never been looked at by a doctor yet. Unquote. Private David E. Johnston, who showed up in the previous episode and you might recall was the Confederate soldier of Kemper's brigade who described the artillery fire they received in anticipation of Pickett's charge, and was on the receiving end of an explosive shell when he stood up to get a breath of air. He remembered the night of July 3rd as one of the worst of his life. Quote, the shed in which I was placed was filled with the wounded and dying. I spoke to no one, and no one to me. Never closed my eyes to sleep the surgeons close by being engaged in removing the limbs of those necessary to be amputated. I heard nothing but the cries of the wounded and the groans of the dying, the agonies of General Kemper, who lay nearby, being frequently heard. Unquote. Aside from the immediate care of the wounded, many difficult decisions needed to be made. Orders were passed down through the ranks that instructed the regimental surgeons to determine which soldiers were well enough to walk on their own or could be transported by ambulance. Those who could walk would either be sent back to their regiments or follow along with the ambulance trains. 
Those with leg wounds or anything else that would prevent them from walking would be loaded into ambulance wagons. But not all of the wounded would be able to be transported back to Virginia. This was done out of necessity, but also some level of mercy. For one, the army did not have the capability of moving all the wounded by wagon. There was simply not enough room to transport them. Even on July 3rd and 4th, Army Quartermasters were busy requisitioning as many wagons or buggies from Adams County citizens as they could find. But also, some soldiers just could not simply physically handle the journey. The ride back would be arduous. They would be packed into ambulances like sardines in a can. Wagon beds might be lined with straw or blankets, but that was about it. Mostly, they'd be lying on bare boards. There were no springs in the wagon, so every bump along the road would be felt by the soldiers. Except for traffic jams, there would be no stopping for any reason until the trains reached Williamsport, and then after crossing, there would not be another stop until they reached Winchester, Virginia. Those considered in critical condition would be left behind at Winchester or other army hospitals in the Shenandoah Valley, but ultimately the destination would be Stanton, Virginia, which had the closest railroad terminus. From there, the wounded soldiers would travel by train until they reached Richmond. Depending on the route, this meant a wagon ride of at least 170 miles, and then another 100 miles by train back to the Confederate capital. Those with recent amputations or severely infected wounds simply could not handle this ordeal, and would have to be left behind in the care of army surgeons. This would undoubtedly mean that they would be captured by federal forces after the Confederate withdrawal. Dr. Thomas Fanning Wood, surgeon of the 3rd North Carolina, Johnson's division, described this difficult process, quote, the scene at the division hospital was very distressing. I was sent to report the number of wounded and indicate all who were able to march or be transported in wagons. The men were not slow to find out that we were preparing to fall back and leave them as prisoners. I knew the men well by this time, and they greatly desired that I remain with them, but Dr. Herndon of Fredericksburg, surgeon of a regiment, was detailed for that purpose. Every empty wagon was loaded with wounded men." Unquote. Ultimately, 446 of the 1,300 wounded soldiers of Johnson's division were detailed to be left behind, just a little more than a third. You would see similar numbers across the board for each division. Johnson's division, part of Ewell's Corps, fell under the supervision of the 2nd Corps medical director, Dr. Hunter McGuire. McGuire worked diligently through the night of July 3rd and the morning of July 4th. His job was more difficult than the rest of the army because they still needed to pull back to the seminary and Oak Ridge line west of town first. McGuire was noted as one of the most talented surgeons in the army. Only 27 years old, he was a native of Winchester, Virginia, and the son of a well-known Virginia doctor, Hugh McGuire. He had enlisted as a private in the 2nd Virginia Infantry at the outset of the war, but his talents as a physician led him to become the surgeon of Stonewall Jackson's brigade. Jackson was initially skeptical of the young doctor, but the two grew close during the war. It was McGuire who treated the mortally wounded Jackson after the Battle of Chancellorsville. Earlier in the war, he also had the distinction of setting the precedent of allowing army surgeons not to be treated as prisoners of war. During Jackson's Valley Campaign the previous spring, seven U.S. Army surgeons were captured when the Confederates drove Union forces out of Winchester. McGuire convinced Jackson to release the doctors, and McGuire wrote a statement that became known as the Winchester Accords. U.S. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton followed this up with Special Orders No. 60, which released all Confederate surgeons from Union prisons. Though there were occasional lapses in this practice, it essentially set the precedent for the treatment of medical personnel in the war, and the Winchester Accords became an influence in the First Geneva Convention. Despite this, some doctors did not want to be left behind. 
Dr. LeGrand Wilson, regimental surgeon in the 42nd Mississippi, begged Dr. Henry Hubbard, chief surgeon of Heath's division, quote, I don't want to fall into the hands of the enemy, although I know they will treat me right. I am real cranky on this subject. Please give me something else, unquote. Hubbard relented and found someone else willing to stay behind. Many soldiers did not want to be left to fall into the hands of the Yankees, knowing that they surely would be imprisoned after the recovery. Lieutenant James Mincy was one such soldier, who was told that he was not well enough to be transported home, but Mincy and his personal slave Rube felt otherwise. Rube managed to steal a horse and wagon from a local farmer, and joined the procession of wagon trains. Mincy made it back to Virginia and recovered enough to return to the ranks later that year. Two notable officers left behind were Generals Isaac Trimble and James Kemper. Both had been wounded in the July 3rd assault, and neither was well enough to be transported. Trimble's leg was amputated, and Kemper's wound was considered to be mortal, though he ultimately survived the battle. Trimble would be held as a prisoner for the rest of the war at Johnson's Island, Ohio, on Lake Erie, and later Fort Warren in Boston. He was almost exchanged at the very end of the war, but the retreat of Lee's army following the collapse of the army's defenses around Petersburg, Virginia, prevented his return. He was paroled less than a week after Lee surrendered at Appomattox. Kemper was exchanged later that summer for Union Brigadier General Charles K. Graham, who had been wounded and captured during the fight on July 2nd. Kemper was unable to return to active duty. Because the bullet was lodged so close to an artery, surgeons determined that it would be too risky to remove it, and it remained in his body for the rest of his life, which caused him chronic groin pain. General Lee continued working with his subordinates and staff officers to ensure that the army would be able to evacuate quickly and efficiently. He met with Dick Ewell to discuss the movement of his corps as well as the transportation of the Army's vast reserve train. Responsible for overseeing this task was Ewell's corps quartermaster, Major John A. Harmon. Harmon came to prominence as Jackson's chief quartermaster earlier in the war. He was born in 1824 in Waynesboro, Virginia, and had a varied pre-war career. He served as a newspaper editor, fought in the Mexican War, worked as a butcher, and finally as a justice of the peace. His elder brother Michael ran the stagecoach in Waynesboro and owned some 40 enslaved black people. John Harmon was also active in politics as a Democrat and had unsuccessfully campaigned for Stephen Douglas's presidential run in 1860. He developed a reputation as one of the best quartermaster officers in the Army of Northern Virginia and also for his large size and personality. Major Henry Kidd Douglas, formerly of Stonewall Jackson's staff and at Gettysburg, one of Allegheny Johnson's staff officers, described Harmon as, quote, big-bodied, big-voiced, untiring, fearless of man or devil, who would have ordered Jackson himself out of the way if necessary to obey Jackson's orders, unquote. Despite serving under Jackson for more than a year, Harmon butted heads with the fanatical corps commander. Three of his children died of scarlet fever in the winter of 1862, and Jackson denied him an extended leave of absence so he could attend their funeral, which caused a great rift between the two. Harmon was also rather profane and not particularly religious, unlike the eccentrically pious Stonewall. Ewell entrusted Harmon to get the Army's reserve train and his corps quartermaster subsistence and ordnance trains back to Virginia, reportedly telling him, quote, to get that train safely across the Potomac, or he wanted to see his face no more, unquote. Harmon was more than capable of the task, having organized the Army's retreat across the Potomac during the Maryland Campaign in 1862. All throughout the night and early morning, the wagons were systematically organized and began moving toward Fairfield around 3 a.m. 
With that part of the evacuation taken care of, Lee then needed to find someone capable of overseeing the evacuation of the trains of the 1st and 3rd Corps along the longer route through the Cashtown Gap. He chose the recently arrived Brigadier General John Mboden. Mboden has come up a couple of times in this series, but his independent cavalry brigade had largely been on the periphery of the campaign. Mboden was 40 and a native of Stanton, Virginia. He'd grown up on a farm in the Shenandoah Valley. After serving as a teacher at a school for the deaf, blind, and dumb, he became, what else, but a lawyer. He maintained a successful law practice through the 1850s, served as a state legislator, and owned seven enslaved black people in 1860. Early in the Civil War, he formed an artillery battery that participated in the seizure of the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry. Later, he left the artillery to form a partisan ranger unit, which was later incorporated into the Army of Northern Virginia as a regular cavalry brigade, with an added artillery battery. Imboden's brigade was considered to be an independent command and operated under orders directly from Army headquarters as opposed to Jeb Stuart. This was due to the distaste that many regular Army officers like Stuart had for most partisan rangers. They were considered unreliable and not suited for the typical duties of regular cavalry, so they spent most of the war in between the major theaters of operation, mostly performing raids. Imboden and Grumble Jones had launched a successful raid in the spring in Maryland and what is now West Virginia, destroying railroad tracks, stealing livestock, and capturing prisoners. Imboden continued this type of activity during the early days of the campaign. Like Stuart, Lee was not terribly confident in Imboden's capabilities, but his brigade consisted of the only cavalry in the army that wasn't worn down by weeks of active campaigning. Sometime after 9pm, he received a message to report to Lee's headquarters. Upon his arrival, Lee was nowhere to be seen. He learned that the army commander was at A.P. Hill's headquarters, so he rode there. After a courtesy greeting, Lee told him that he was not ready to meet with him, so he asked the cavalry leader to wait for him at his headquarters. It wasn't until 1 a.m. that Lee arrived, and Bowden remembered, quote, The moon shone full upon his massive features and revealed an expression of sadness that I had never seen before upon his face. Awed by his appearance, I waited for him to speak until the silence became embarrassing, unquote. Lots of people described their interactions with Lee in the aftermath of the battle. While many talked about his usual placid nature, quite a few mentioned that there was something different about Lee in the hours after the defeat. Obviously, the emotional strain of the repulse of Pickett's charge, combined with his already poor physical health, was taking a toll on the general. He was already weak from a heart attack suffered earlier in the spring, and had not really slept in days, and was suffering from chronic diarrhea. After those moments of awkward silence, Mboden finally said, quote, General, this has been a hard day on you. To which Lee replied, Yes, it has been a sad, sad day to us. Too bad. Too bad. Oh, too bad. Unquote. He talked about the performance of Pickett's Virginians and the status of the wounded Kemper and the missing Garnett and Armistead. He then brought the cavalry officer into his headquarters tent, and the two discussed the situation. Mboden remembered Lee saying, quote, We must now return to Virginia. As many of our poor wounded as possible must be taken home. I have sent for you because your men and horses are fresh and in good condition to guard and conduct our train back to Virginia. The duty will be arduous, responsible, and dangerous, for I am afraid you will be harassed by the enemy's cavalry. How many men have you? Unquote. And Bowden told him, quote, About 2,100, and all well-mounted, including McClanahan's six-gun battery of horse artillery. Unquote. Lee continued, 
Quote, I can spare you as much artillery as you require, but no other troops, as I shall need all I have to return safely by a different and shorter route than yours. The batteries are generally short of ammunition, but you will probably meet a supply I have ordered from Winchester to Williamsport. Nearly all the transportation and care of all the wounded will be entrusted to you. You will cross the mountain by the Chambersburg Road, and then proceed to Williamsport by any route you deem best, and without a halt till you reach the river. Rest there long enough to feed your animals, then ford the river, and do not halt again till you reach Winchester, where I will again communicate with you. I will place in your hands by a staff officer, tomorrow morning, a sealed package for President Davis, which you are to retain in your possession until you are across the Potomac, when you will detail a reliable commissioned officer to take it to Richmond, with all possible dispatch, and deliver it into the President's own hands. And I impose upon you that whatever happens, this package must not fall into the hands of the enemy. If unfortunately you should be captured, destroy it at the first opportunity." Unquote. And with that, the two generals saluted and parted ways. And Bowdoin went to work organizing the evacuation of the majority of the army's wounded with the quartermasters and medical directors. Before I turn our attention to the Army of the Potomac, I want to briefly describe an action on the periphery of the campaign that would have far-reaching consequences. Following the Second Battle of Winchester, which I discussed back in Episode 5, Union General Robert Milroy's command fled in multiple directions. The debris of Winchester, as they were derisively called, ended up either going north into Maryland and Pennsylvania or heading toward Harper's Ferry. A small group of the former coalesced under Colonel Andrew T. McReynolds, who commanded a brigade in the disastrous defense of Winchester. McReynolds was born in 1808 in Northern Ireland to a family of Ulster Scots. He immigrated to the U.S. in 1830 following his father's death and ultimately settled in Detroit, Michigan, where he became a prominent lawyer and Michigan political figure. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he was personally commissioned by President Lincoln as a cavalry colonel, and raised a cavalry regiment in New York City that became the 1st New York Cavalry, aka the Lincoln Cavalry. Following the defeat at Winchester, McReynolds reorganized several cavalry units into a new brigade that fell under the command of General William French. On July 1st, French sent the Lincoln Cavalry to scout the Potomac River. Valuable information was learned during this reconnaissance mission. It turned out that the pontoon bridge at Falling Waters and the fords at Williamsport were lightly defended by only a few hundred rebel soldiers and engineers. Upon learning this, McReynolds requested that General French allow him to send a cavalry force to destroy the pontoon bridge and break Lee's line of communication. French quickly agreed to this, and McReynolds tapped Major Shadrach Foley to lead a force of roughly 300 troopers of the 14th Pennsylvania Cavalry, the Lincoln Cavalry, 13th Pennsylvania Cavalry, and a detachment of the 6th Michigan Cavalry of Custer's Wolverine Brigade. Foley's detachment left Frederick, Maryland on the night of July 3rd, and arrived at Falling Waters sometime after midnight. Under the cover of darkness, the Federal cavalrymen attacked the small Confederate force guarding the pontoon bridge. A Union prisoner of war in Williamsport described the action, quote, Three regiments charged it, one fought to the right, another to the left, while the third, supplied with straw and turpentine, set fire to it 
cutting it loose from its moorings to let it float downriver, a burning wreck. Our cavalry had cut their way in and destroyed the only bridge that Lee had left in his rear. Score another for the cavalry, unquote. Foley's command captured a few Confederate soldiers, a number of wagons and mules, and then rode victoriously back to Frederick. An editorial in the Richmond Dispatch nine days later would correctly surmise that, quote, the destruction of our pontoon bridge below Williamsport was owing to carelessness, unquote. It was certainly an oversight by the Confederate High Command to leave their one bridge across the Potomac so lightly defended. Lee had instructed his staff to do so, but the demands of the campaign were too much for Lee's already overwhelmed staff. Many of his officers complained that they did not have enough manpower to meet the demands that the army commander expected of them. Colonel Edward Porter Alexander also believed that their lack of a properly sized staff was one of the many issues that plagued the Army of Northern Virginia. Back in Gettysburg, General George Gordon Meade needed to find a new headquarters. The Leicester House, which he had abandoned during the Confederate artillery barrage in the afternoon, was overrun with wounded and Confederate soldiers. Many of the problems that he discussed with the Army of Northern Virginia also plagued Meade's Army of the Potomac. Though the Battle of July 3rd had not been quite as destructive for the Union Army, they still had around the same number of wounded soldiers to deal with from the past three days. Additionally, they had thousands of Confederate prisoners from Friday's fight to deal with. The rainstorm of July 3rd caused a number of problems for the Army. Rock Creek began to overflow. Wounded soldiers that were laid out on the ground surrounding the hospitals near the creek had to be moved for fear of drowning. The vast majority of Union soldiers had not had a real meal in more than a day. Like Lee, Meade had his own array of logistical problems. The issue of keeping his army supplied with food, clothes, and ammunition was catching up with him. Because the army was not near an operational railroad, all of their supplies had to be transported by wagon from the nearest railroad terminus at Westminster, Maryland, nearly 25 miles away. Mule teams ran back and forth between the army and Westminster all day and night to try to keep the army functioning. They were doing the best they could, but this practice would not be adequate enough if the army was to stay near Gettysburg indefinitely. Meade, however, did not intend to stay in Adams County for long. He expected Lee to withdraw, but exactly where his foe would go next remained a mystery. He figured there were two likely scenarios. The first would be for Lee to move his army to the west and fortify the passes in South Mountain and dare Meade to attack him. From there, he could continue his foraging operations west of the mountain range. The second, and ultimately what Lee would end up doing, was to fall back on his line of communications and retreat back to Virginia through Williamsport. Meade had to prepare for both possibilities, and Lee's course of direction would ultimately determine his own actions. The Federal Army commander received quite a bit of criticism for his performance in the days after the Battle of Gettysburg, most of which were unfair, but one thing I think you could criticize him for was his willingness to let Lee dictate the course of events. Meade reacted to Lee's moves instead of forcing him to react to his own. I think it's understandable why he did this. He was still new to command and had a battered army of his own to put back together. There were also constraints placed upon him by Halleck and the War Department for the protection of Washington and Baltimore. Lincoln, Stanton, and Halleck's tune changed once it was realized that Meade had defeated Lee's army at Gettysburg and news from Mississippi came in, which I'll discuss more later. Instead of protecting the nation's capital, the annihilation or significant destruction of the Army of Northern Virginia would become the new priority, though this was ineffectively communicated to Meade. After moving his headquarters to another house along the Baltimore Pike, Meade sent out dispatches to Halleck, which I read at the end of the last episode, 
as well as to General Darius Couch. Couch's department of the Susquehanna was still concentrated to the north near Carlisle and Harrisburg, but Meade informed him around 10 p.m. on July 3rd to be ready to move down the Cumberland Valley if Lee began to retreat. Though sometimes derisively called an old snapping turtle, George Meade was quite affectionate with his wife and communicated with her frequently during the war. He'd been unable to find the time to write to her for the past few days, but managed to scribble out a quick note to her sometime after midnight on July 4th that read, quote, All well and going on well with the army. We had a great fight yesterday, the enemy attacking and we completely repulsing them. Both armies shattered. Today at it again, with what results remain to be seen. Army in fine spirits and everyone determined to do or die. George and myself well. Reynolds killed the first day. No other friends of yours or acquaintances hurt. Unquote. The soldiers of the army were worn out, hungry, and after the thunderstorm, quite drenched. Groups of soldiers were detailed to bury the enemy's dead within their own lines. They were also told to record the number of dead. Rumors swirled within the ranks. A notable one was that General George McClellan was on his way from Washington with another army, and together they would destroy the rebels. The return of McClellan was something that popped up from time to time after the general's ouster the previous fall, and wouldn't go away until he ran unsuccessfully against Lincoln in the election of 1864. Many also expected a counterattack against the Confederates, but as darkness grew, that idea was thrown out. The soldiers settled in to get as much rest as they could. The historian of the 146th New York Infantry Regiment wrote after the war the feelings that were likely shared by many in the army. Quote, as the sun went down on the night of July 3rd, 1863, there was not a man in our regiment who did not realize that the three days battle in which we had taken so active a part, and the closing scenes of which we had witnessed from our excellent vantage point on Little Round Top, had been one of the greatest and most decisive of the war. Unquote. There was still much more work to be done before the campaign would be finished. Throughout the night of the 3rd and early morning of the 4th, Ewell's troops left their positions in and to the east of Gettysburg and marched through the town until they reached the main Confederate line. Some citizens of Gettysburg witnessed the withdrawal. One such resident was Daniel Skelly, the 18-year-old younger brother of Jack Skelly. Jack Skelly, you might recall, was the Union soldier who was allegedly engaged to Jenny Wade, the young woman killed earlier on July 3rd. Jack, at the time, was dying from a wound received after the Second Battle of Winchester. Daniel Skelly had trouble sleeping in the night of July 3rd. He noticed quite a bit of commotion going on outside. Quote, Getting up, I went to the window and saw Confederate officers passing through the lines of the Confederate soldiers, bivouacked on the pavement below, telling them to get up quietly and fall back. Very soon, the whole line disappeared. Unquote. Fanny Bueller, the wife of Gettysburg's postmaster, wrote in her diary, quote, our boys suspected the enemy was beaten from some little things they heard, and believed they were preparing for retreat from what they saw. Consequently, they kept a close watch upon them, and soon found they were not mistaken. They were really going away. The enemy retreated cautiously and very quietly, and many of our citizens did not know of their going until 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning, for they did not withdraw their last pickets until the advance of their now broken army neared the Potomac." Unquote. When the people of the town awoke on the morning of July 4th, they were happy to see the disappearance of the rebel army, but were also horrified by what they had left behind. Bueller continued in her diary, quote, The wounded, the dead and dying, all heaped together, horses that had fallen beneath their riders with limbs shattered and torn, dead, wounded, and bleeding, 
all lying in the street so far as we could see. Such was the awful scene spread out before us as we ventured to the front of our houses in the morning of the 4th of July, 1863, Sally Broadhead also remembered waking up on July 4th and thinking, quote, what a beautiful morning, unquote. But she also recognized the irony of the beautiful July morning and the carnage that surrounded them, quote, it seemed as though nature was smiling on thousands of suffering, unquote. John L. Schick, a merchant and owner of a general store in Gettysburg, did not have a joyful Independence Day. His business had been ruined by the marauding Confederates, and the whole battle had caused him great stress. He later remarked, quote, I smoked 21 cigars in one day, unquote. Union 3rd Corps Brigade Commander Colonel Philippe Régis de Trobriand rather romantically opined that, quote, it always rains on the day after a great battle, unquote. This was true on July 4th. Beginning at 3 a.m. and for most of the day, Gettysburg received another downpour. It was just as intense and even longer in duration than it had been the day before. Though it made everyone miserable, it provided cover for the withdrawal of Ewell's troops in the early morning darkness. Meade was alerted to this early that morning. Not long after, he sent orders to General Oliver Howard to move troops into the town. It's obvious that this was simply because Howard's 11th Corps was closest to Gettysburg proper, but it feels fitting that the troops that were unfairly blamed for the loss of the town on July 1st were the ones that were first to reoccupy the town. Smoke emanated from the buildings on the western edge of Gettysburg. The retreating Confederates had set fire to them, so Federal sharpshooters couldn't occupy the buildings after their withdrawal. Captain George B. Fox of the 75th Ohio remembered that, quote, We charged through the town about a half mile in length, double quick. We drove the enemy out of the town and beyond in some three squares. We captured some 300 prisoners. The fact that we surprised them, many were sleeping, unquote. The 75th skirmished with the pickets left behind in the town for about an hour. After they were relieved, Fox Riley described the meal he had. Quote, I have had nothing to eat for three days but coffee and three hardtacks. Now I will indulge in some tack and coffee. Unquote. Private Leander Schooley, whose company of the 1st Indiana Cavalry was serving as General Howard's escort, rode into Gettysburg after the rebels were driven out and recalled, quote, the battlefield was the awfulest sight I ever saw. The woods in front of our men, the trees were riddled with cannonball and bullets, every limb shot off 20 feet high. Some say the rebel dead lay six feet deep in the graveyard where we lay. Nearly every gravestone was shattered by shots and everything torn to pieces. I went through the town on the 4th of July with the general. The streets were covered with dead. Every frame house was riddled with balls. The brick ones dented thick where the shot had hit. Unquote. General Alexander Schimmelfennig, the Prussian-born communist who commanded a brigade in Karl Schurz's division, had been separated from his command on July 1st during the retreat and ended up avoiding capture by hiding from the Confederates in a woodshed for several days. Many believed him to be dead or captured, so his liberation was a small moment of joy. At 6.45 a.m., Meade was alerted to the movement of a large group of wagons along the Fairfield Road. The signs of retreat were becoming clear. But Lee's army was still there. The infantry and artillery were dug in and ready for a fight. Captain Jed Hotchkiss, Ewell's engineer and cartographer, wrote in his journal, quote, We threw up breastworks on the 4th, with the hope that the enemy would leave his position in the mountains and attack us on the open plain, where we could have routed him and kept him in such confusion that rally would have been impossible, unquote. 
Continued reports of wagons massing and moving to the west and southwest led me to believe that Lee was in the process of retreating. He sent a telegram to Halleck relaying his findings, and his signalmen continued to monitor for signs of enemy movement, but low visibility made this difficult. Union skirmishers were pressed forward, particularly on the southern end of the field. This reconnaissance and force was met with stiff resistance by Confederate pickets. That morning, Meade received a message from none other than Robert E. Lee. It read, quote, General, in order to promote the comfort and convenience of the officers and men captured by the opposing armies in the recent engagements, I respectfully propose that an exchange be made at once. Should this proposition be acceptable, please indicate the hour and point between the lines of the armies where such an exchange can be made. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, R. E. Lee, General, unquote. There wasn't much for me to consider in the situation. Henry Halleck had issued a general order which forbade the paroling of prisoners. I've talked about this practice a little bit in past episodes, but as a refresher, when a captured soldier was paroled, he was allowed to return to his own lines. The caveat was that he couldn't rejoin the ranks until he had officially been exchanged for a soldier of the opposing army. This practice relieved each army of the burden of caring for prisoners, and it allowed the soldiers to re-enter service more quickly. There were a few cases of Union soldiers being paroled during the campaign, but these paroles would not be recognized by the federal government, and they were liable to execution if captured by the Confederate forces. Ultimately, Meade replied, quote, General R. E. Lee, Commanding Army of Northern Virginia, I have the honor of acknowledging the receipt of your communication at this date, proposing to make an exchange at once of captured officers and men in my possession, and have to say, most respectfully, that it is not in my power to accede to the proposed engagement. Very respectfully, George G. Meade, Major General Commanding, unquote. In addition to his message to Couch the night before, he also communicated with General William French, whose command was at Frederick, Maryland. It was the cavalry under French that had destroyed the pontoon bridge earlier that morning. Meade told him that he believed Lee was withdrawing, and he wanted him to move troops to seize several of the South Mountain Passes to prevent the Confederates from getting control of them. He also wanted French to move troops to reoccupy Maryland Heights, the small mountain that overlooked Harper's Ferry from the Maryland side of the Potomac. Later in the day, when it became apparent that Lee's army had yet to leave, Meade had second thoughts and sent another message countermanding the order, but French had already moved a brigade toward Turner's, Fox's, and Crampton's gaps. It seemed that the Federal Army commander was second-guessing himself a little bit. He had correctly guessed that Lee was moving away from Gettysburg but his exact intention still perplexed Meade. Was he truly in full retreat, or was he trying to lure Meade into attacking his entrenched forces west and south of Gettysburg? So partly because he was unsure, but also partly because the army itself was in dire need of rest, the Federals largely did nothing on July 4th. Lieutenant Elisha Hunt Rhodes of the 2nd Rhode Island Infantry recorded in his diary, quote, Was ever the nation's birthday celebrated in such a way before? This morning, the 2nd Rhode Island was sent out to the front, and found that during the night General Lee and his rebel army had fallen back. It was impossible to march across the field without stepping upon dead or wounded men, while horses and broken artillery lay on every side. We advanced to a sunken road where we deployed as skirmishers and lay down behind a bank of earth. Verdan's sharpshooters joined us, and we passed the day in firing upon any rebels that showed themselves." Unquote. But that was about as much action as the Yankee infantry had on July 4th. Now, I shouldn't say that Meade did absolutely nothing that day. One branch of the army was on the move, the cavalry. In order to ascertain Lee's intentions, the Federal troopers fanned out in different directions. 
Colonel John Irvin Gregg's brigade was ordered to move around the Confederate left wing toward Cashtown Gap. Buford's division was ordered to march toward Frederick and from there to Turner's Gap. And Kilpatrick's division would move through Emmitsburg to Monterey Pass. Regardless of Meade's fears of falling into a potential trap, he still maintained throughout the day that the army would pursue the Confederates. In a telegram to General Couch sent in the afternoon, he wrote, quote, As soon as it can be definitely ascertained that Lee is retiring into the valley, I shall move rapidly in a southern direction, unquote. Union lines also did not remain completely static. Troops from the 2nd and 12th Corps were moved out into the direction of two taverns in Littlestown, Pennsylvania, along the Baltimore Pike, to better protect their flank and main line of communication. George Meade continued to send messages to Halleck throughout the day. Around noon, he wrote, quote, The position of affairs has not materially changed from my last dispatch of 7 a.m. The enemy has abandoned large number of his killed and wounded on the field, unquote. Shortly after, he informed the General-in-Chief, quote, I shall retire some time to get up supplies, ammunition, etc., rest the army, worn out by long marches and three days hard fighting. I shall probably be able to give you a return of our captures and losses before night, and return of the enemy's killed and wounded in our hands. Unquote. Supplies continued to come from Westminster along the Baltimore Pike. Soldiers were issued three days' rations, but the heavy rain ruined it. The army was desperately low on horses as well. Since the campaign began, the Union Army had lost somewhere between 10 and 15,000 horses. Many had been killed as a result of combat, exhaustion, or starvation. Others were too weak to continue or were injured. The Army's chief quartermaster, Brigadier General Rufus Ingalls, wrote to his superior, Quartermaster General Montgomery C. Meggs, requesting more horses, quote, The enemy has been defeated. I trust now that the Army of the Potomac may be regarded as capable of fighting. Our supplies are coming up. We marched and fought this battle without baggage or wagons. The loss of horses in these severe battles has been great in killed, wounded, and worn down by excessive work. General Meade and staff lost 16 and killed yesterday. I think we shall require 2,000 cavalry and 1,500 artillery horses as soon as possible to recruit the army. Both these arms have done glorious service. I hope you have enough to make up deficiencies." Unquote. Aside from keeping the army supplied, Meade had another significant logistical concern. If he were to move his army, he would likely have to change his base of supplies. If Lee did as he believed he might, the Army of the Potomac would move southwest along the eastern side of South Mountain. If this happened, then their base of supplies could be moved to Frederick. But if Meade were to move too early and then have to backtrack, it could mean that the arrival of needed supplies would be delayed due to rerouting. This would partly explain his hesitancy to move too quickly on July 4th. Luckily, both General Meggs and Ingalls were outstanding quartermasters and had pulled off incredible feats throughout the war. The vast network of railroads and their efficient system of supplies could keep the army going for the time being. Another significant written document, one that would cause quite a bit of commotion in the following days, was General Orders 68. Meade dictated the message that would be read to the troops of the army. Quote, Commanding General, on behalf of the country, thanks the Army of the Potomac for the glorious result of the recent operations. An enemy, superior in numbers and flush with the pride of a successful invasion, attempted to overcome and destroy this army. Utterly baffled and defeated, he has now withdrawn from the contest. The privations and fatigue the army has endured, and the heroic courage and gallantry it has displayed, will be matters of history to be over-remembered. Our task is not yet accomplished 
and the commanding general looks to the army for greater efforts to drive from our soil every vestige of the presence of the invader. It is right and proper that we should, on all suitable occasions, return our grateful thanks to the almighty disposer of events, that in the goodness of this providence he has thought fit to give victory to the cause of the just. Unquote. That line, dry from our soil every vestige of the presence of the invader, would come back to haunt Meade. More on that later. As the evening of July 4th wore on, more and more reports of the movement of large numbers of rebel wagons came from the Union Signal Corps stations. Even rank-and-file soldiers started to feel that the enemy was pulling up stakes. A soldier of the 14th Vermont recalled, quote, Six o'clock in the evening, it has been ascertained that the enemy has in reality commenced a retreat. The engagement of yesterday terminated the battle, and thus ended another sanguinary contest in one of the best-fought battles of the war, unquote. Writing years after the war, Private Charles E. Davis, who wrote the official history of the 13th Massachusetts, expressed that at least some felt as if their victory was not going to be complete. Quote, As we reflected on the last three days' terrible work, we could not escape the impression that it was a repetition of Antietam, for in both cases the enemy was granted leave to withdraw at a time when it could have little expectation of the exercise of so benignant a privilege. Unquote. This sentiment grew as time progressed. Meanwhile, the assembly of the vast Confederate trains continued all day. Wagons lined the side of the road as the details were hammered out by the various quartermasters, medical personnel, and other staff officers. Also, I want to note that these wagons were typically pulled by mules, although sometimes horses, and the Teamsters who drove the mules were typically black men. It's been estimated that the Army of Northern Virginia used somewhere between six and 10,000 black Teamsters some of whom were actually free and paid, but the majority were slaves that were loaned out, whether willingly or through coercion by the army. This was a pretty common practice in all Confederate armies, and it allowed them to put as many military-aged white men into the field as possible. All throughout the campaign, but particularly during the retreat, enslaved black men would use any opportunity they could get to escape from the army, and fled into the Pennsylvania countryside. Major John Harmon's trains left first, rolling down the Fairfield Road toward the eponymous city around 3 a.m. By 1 p.m., the Army's reserve train finally cleared Fairfield on their way to the South Mountain Passes. At this time, the division trains of the 2nd Corps were ready to move out. The wounded soldiers who were in the hospitals were loaded into the wagons to begin their arduous journey south. General John and Bowden's trains were taking longer to get together. At noon, he lunched with two wounded generals, William Dorsey Pender and Alfred Scales, that were part of the ambulance train that fell under his protection. At 2 p.m., Lee's headquarters were packed and ready to go. Everything seemed to be falling into place. The order of march for the infantry had been determined. First, Hill's Third Corps, who held the center of the rebel line along Seminary Ridge, would lead the march out of Gettysburg. Ewell's Second Corps would take their place in the defensive line. Once Hill's troops had cleared the road, Longstreet's 1st Corps would get on the move. Pickett's shattered division would be responsible for several thousand Union POWs that were with the Army. Finally, Ewell's 2nd Corps would take up the last position in line, and troops from General Jubal Early's division would serve as the rear guard if they were attacked. Ewell was described as being rather anxious to give the Yankees another fight if they came after their column. Striking the right balance was necessary for the retreat. The Confederate Army needed to get out of Dodge quickly, but they also had to do it in an organized and deliberate way. 
If they were too slow, the Federals might attack them in an exposed position or cut off their route of escape. If they were too hasty, then panic might spread amongst the ranks and the army could come apart at the seams. Finally, at 4 p.m., General Imboden's wagon train was ready to roll out on the Chambersburg Pike toward Cashtown. The procession would be escorted by Imboden's brigade, which included the 18th Virginia Cavalry, commanded by Imboden's brother, Colonel George Imboden, the 62nd Virginia Cavalry, McNeil's Company of the Virginian Partisan Rangers, and Captain John McClanahan's Stanton Artillery Battery. General Lee also provided an assortment of artillery from various batteries, and guarding the rear of the train was General Fitzhugh Lee's Cavalry Brigade, as well as General Wade Hampton's Brigade, now under the command of the 33-year-old Tar Heel, Colonel Lawrence Baker. Baker was the commander of the 1st North Carolina Cavalry Regiment of Hampton's Brigade. He was also the last place graduate of the West Point Class of 1851 and a former U.S. Cavalry officer. Wade Hampton had received multiple wounds over the course of the campaign due to his tendency to get involved in the heat of the action. The saber and shrapnel wounds of the past two days took a toll on him, and he would take an ambulance ride back with a fellow wounded general, John Bell Hood. The protection of both wagon trains, which combined stretched out nearly 60 miles, would be incredibly difficult. The cavalry could hardly be expected to cover that much ground, and if the trains were attacked in a vulnerable position, the cavalry escorts might not be able to respond quickly enough. At that time, there were several independent cavalry detachments roaming around in the Cumberland Valley. I already talked about McReynolds' brigade and their raid on Williamsport, but additionally, Captain Ulrich Dahlgren had a force of around 100 Union troopers that left Emmitsburg, Maryland for Waynesboro on July 3rd. They clashed with a small group of Confederate infantry in Greencastle, Pennsylvania on the 4th, and continued lurking around in anticipation of a bigger prize. The other four brigades of Stuart's cavalry received assignments for the retreat as well. Grumble Jones and Beverly Robertson's brigades, which had won a hard-fought victory at Fairfield on the 3rd, would protect the roads leading around Jack's Mountain near the Fairfield Gap, through which Harmon's trains would be traveling. Colonel John R. Chambliss's and Milton Ferguson's brigades would move southward to Emmitsburg, where it would screen the Army's left flank as it retreated through the mountain passes. The next few days would involve a number of cavalry clashes, some big, but mostly small or moderate. The first would occur on the night of July 4th. As I mentioned earlier, the continued reports of the movement of Harmon's wagon train led me to direct Pleasanton to send the cavalry in multiple directions. General Judson Kilpatrick's division was sent southward toward Emmitsburg that morning, where he was reinforced by another brigade, that led by Colonel Pinnock Huey. Huey was a 33-year-old Pennsylvania merchant. He had been named captain of the 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry in 1861. During the early days of the Gettysburg Campaign, he was promoted to colonel and given command of the 8th Pennsylvania. But after the Cavalry Corps was reorganized, he received another promotion to brigade command. Huey's brigade was technically part of General David Gregg's division, but during the campaign they were detached and served on guard duty for the Army supply base at Westminster. When the brigade arrived at Emmitsburg, Kilpatrick ordered his troopers to ride hard toward Monterey Pass, where he hoped they could catch the Confederate wagon train in a vulnerable position. One New York trooper recalled, quote, The whole of us felt in excellent spirits when we heard what had been done the day previous, and that Lee's army was in full retreat towards the Potomac. 
Not even a heavy thunder shower that came up soon after we got on the road did not dampen the ardor of any in the division. Unquote. Another New Yorker wrote in a letter, quote, It was in this past General Kilpatrick proposed to celebrate the anniversary of our independence. Unquote. Others did not feel quite as enthusiastic. Louis Boudry, the chaplain of the 5th New York Cavalry, described the awful conditions. Quote, the rain is falling fast. It is a dreadful moment for the poor soldiers who are out. The wind also blows furiously, which makes the rain doubly unpleasant. Unquote. The dirt roads of the Pennsylvania countryside were in horrible shape, and the thunderstorms turned them into a morass. Bad weather combined with the exhaustion of Kilpatrick's horses made the day's march incredibly tedious. As Kilpatrick's three brigades closed in on South Mountain, several Confederate officers came to the realization that Monterey Pass was too lightly guarded. That afternoon, General Alfred Iverson was ordered to lead his brigade to the pass. Iverson's troops, part of Rhodes' division of the 2nd Corps, took heavy casualties in an ill-led attack on July 1st. Trying to get them to march from Gettysburg to Monterey Pass quickly enough to block Kilpatrick's division was a lofty goal at best, considering the distance they needed to traverse and the worsening road conditions. They would ultimately not make it in time. Grumble Jones also recognized the vulnerability of Harmon's train. He asked Jeb Stewart for permission to move two of his regiments to protect the pass. Stewart allowed him to take the 6th Virginia and 4th North Carolina Cavalry regiments, while the rest of Jones and Robertson's brigades protected the roads around Jack's Mountain. On the night of the 4th, only around 20 cavalrymen of the 1st Maryland Battalion, under the command of Captain George Emac, aided by one gun of Captain William Tanner's battery of artillery, defended the pass. They were posted close to the summit, just to the east of a hotel on a plateau, which in any other summer was a popular resort for wealthy vacationers. About a mile and a half to the west of Emacs Troopers was the convergence of two roads, the Maria Furnace Road and the Waynesboro-Emmitsburg Turnpike. The Confederate wagon train was coming down the former road and Kilpatrick's division down the latter. For the Confederates, it was of utmost importance to keep the Federals from reaching that intersection. Ewell's division trains were crossing South Mountain at the time that Kilpatrick's command approached. With the help of a guide named Charles H. Berman, Custer's Wolverine Brigade advanced toward Emac's small group. Tanner's 12-pounder Napoleon fired off a round at the advancing Wolverines, which halted their march. Several more rounds were hurled at the Yankee troopers. The shots weren't causing much damage, but the confusion created by the darkness led Custer's men to hesitate. Edward Paul, a New York Times war correspondent attached with the Michigan Brigade, painted a descriptive picture. Quote, Imagine a long column of cavalry winding its way up the mountainside, on a road dug out of the mountainside, which sloped at an angle of 30 degrees, just wide enough for four horses to march abreast. On one side, a deep abyss, and on the other side, an impassable barrier, in the shape of a steep embankment. The hour 10 o'clock at night. A drizzling rain falling, the sky overcast, and so dark as literally not to be able to see one's own hand if placed within a foot of the organs of vision. The whole command, both men and animals, worn out with fatigue and loss of sleep. Unquote. The rough trail they were marching up led John Allen Bigelow, a bugler of Custer's brigade, to rhetorically ask, quote, This is a mountain pass? Unquote. Emacs horse soldiers opened fire as well, inflicting some damage on the advancing column and frightening both the Union troopers as well as their horses. Emac then ordered a mounted charge, which threw the troopers of the 5th Michigan back in disarray. The tiny force of Marylanders, aided by the terrain and darkness, was skillfully holding back a force many times larger than their own. 
The bold charge delayed any further advance from Kilpatrick's division for at least an hour or so. As Private Alan Rice of the 6th Michigan remembered, quote, just imagine yourself, not knowing what you was going into, and when you had gone a short distance, have the bullets come whirring about your ears like a lot of bees after honey, and your horse rearing and prancing half scared to death." Unquote. But with the help of local civilians, the Wolverines continued their advance. Charles Berman, who reluctantly accompanied the brigade after they passed his farm, informed the cavalry officers of a wooded area that they could use to outflank the Confederate defenders. Hetty Zeilinger, a 12-year-old girl who lived at Monterey Pass, also provided information about the situation of the wagon train and the rebel force holding near the summit. David Miller, another local farmer who had been briefly taken prisoner by the rebels, managed to make his way to Union lines. Kilpatrick was intent on driving off Emac's force, but he was also interested in heading off the rebel wagon train, and asked Miller and Berman if they could guess what route the train would take to Hagerstown. They told the general that they would likely pass through Leitersburg. Kilpatrick convinced Berman to lead a detachment of cavalry to move in another direction to march through Smithsburg and then Leitersburg in order to cut off the rebel retreat. Meanwhile, the Michigan Brigade had to deal with the force in front of them, as well as attacks on their flank and rear by the troopers of Grumble Jones and Beverly Robertson. With the help of their local guides, the horse soldiers pushed on, outflanking Emac and Tanner's gun, forcing them to fall back closer to the road intersection where the wagon train was rumbling down. Around this time, Grumble Jones and his staff arrived. Jones couldn't help but be impressed by the stout defensive stand of Emac's band of Marylanders, but he knew that they were in real trouble if reinforcements did not arrive in time. The 4th North Carolina Cavalry did get there, but they alone were still not enough to hold back three determined brigades of Union Cavalry. The hope at this point was to get as many wagons out of the pass as possible. Kilpatrick's troopers continued forward up the mountain toward the summit in the hours after midnight. He had two guns of Lieutenant Alexander Pennington's battery of horse artillery deployed near the Monterey Hotel. They began to launch shells at the rebel defenders. Kilpatrick then ordered the bulk of the Michigan Brigade to charge. Custer's horse was once again shot out from under him, and he barely avoided capture. The charge failed to drive off the rebel cavalrymen, so Custer's men dismounted and continued to press the attack on foot. It was still difficult for the attackers to even find the enemy. Captain James Harvey Kidd of the 6th Michigan recalled, quote, had it not been for the noise and flashing of the enemy's fire, we should have wandered away in the darkness and been lost." Unquote. With Custer's forces either engaged at the summit of the mountain or off on the flanks, and Huey protecting the rear, Kilpatrick called upon his 1st Brigade, now led by Colonel Nathaniel P. Richmond, in place of the dead General Elon Farnsworth. Richmond, a native of Indiana and a former lawyer, would turn 30 later that month. Before Farnsworth's death, he led the 1st West Virginia Cavalry, formerly known as the 1st Virginia Union Cavalry. The Mountaineers were now led by Captain Charles Capehart. Kilpatrick ordered Captain Capehart to lead his 640 troopers in his favorite tactical maneuver, a mounted charge. Believing that they were facing an enemy five times their size, they readied to finish off the job. Sergeant Joseph Achilles Lesage of the 1st wrote after the war, quote, all the while we were getting ready, the Rebs were passing us grape from their battery. The darkness was so dense that we could not tell what kind they were, but we took them in all the same. While we were forming up, seconds appeared like hours, but at last the order came. Boys, draw sabers and prepare to charge. Let everyone yell as loud as he can. Then the order to charge, and at it we go, striking at everything that looks like a man. We seize the battery. It has tumbled over the embankment down the mountainside. 
Then we turn our attention to the foremost end of the train, all the while making more noise than a pack of wild Indians. We find it a hot place as we have it hand to hand. Sabers and revolvers are used rather freely. We soon began to take in prisoners." Unquote. Company A of the 1st Ohio Cavalry, led by Captain Noah Jones, was ordered to join the West Virginians. After shaking hands with Jones, General Custer told him to, quote, do your duty, God bless you, unquote. Jones then told his troopers, quote, use sabers alone, I will cut down the first man that fires a shot, unquote. And with that, the Buckeyes joined the Mountaineers and cut through the remaining Confederate defenders, crashed into the wagon train. Pennington's two guns fired on the panicked column, disabling several wagons, which blocked their route of escape. Teamsters drove their mules as quickly as possible, but many were forced to surrender or risk being shot or cut down by Kilpatrick's victorious troopers. Caught up in the melee was Lieutenant Henry Shepard of the 43rd North Carolina Infantry, who had been shot through the calf on the morning of July 3rd at Culp's Hill. Though his leg bone was just bruised, meaning that for the time being it did not need amputation, he could not walk and was among thousands of wounded soldiers being transported by ambulance. He recalled, quote, I was captured with our ambulance train on the night of July 4th in the mountain passes between Monterey, Pennsylvania and Hagerstown, Maryland. My experience was most thrilling and memorable. In its desperate attempt to escape, our train drove through the contending lines of cavalry, the one striving to capture, the other to protect. I was utterly helpless and disabled, and the ghastly recollections of the gloomy, stormy night when I was driven through the lines of battle, unable to raise my hand, and in momentary peril of my life, can never be dimmed or effaced." Unquote. General Grumble Jones is also amid the chaotic scene. He and Captain George Emac attempted to rally their horse soldiers, but this failed. Emac was wounded several times and had to be carried off the field by his men. Jones barely managed to avoid capture by telling his staff not to refer to him by his rank and simply call him Bill. As soon as he could, he left the road and hightailed it toward Waynesboro. The fight at Monterey Pass ended in a resounding Union victory. It had taken over five hours, but Kilpatrick was thrilled by their success and boasted that he'd captured and destroyed Ewell's entire wagon train. This was a gross exaggeration. The Army Reserve train was nowhere near Monterey Pass at that time, having reached Hagerstown sometime earlier, and most of Ewell's division trains had yet to even reach the pass. But the Federals had certainly come away with a significant haul. In total, over 200 wagons, primarily ambulances, were either seized or destroyed by the Federals. Many of General Robert Rhodes's division quartermaster trains, as well as the quartermaster trains of several artillery battalions were captured. 1,400 Confederate soldiers and cavalrymen were taken prisoner, the bulk of whom were wounded and could not fight or run away. Kilpatrick's losses were minimal, only 48 in total, including five confirmed killed in action. Monterey Pass was a memorable experience for all involved. Captain Kidd of the 6th Michigan Cavalry recalled, quote, It was one of the most exciting engagements we ever had. For while the actual number engaged was small, and the casualties were not that great, the time, the place, the circumstances, the darkness, the uncertainty, all combined to make the midnight fight at Monterey one of unique interest. General Custer had his horse shot under him, which it is said, and I have reason to believe, was the seventh horse killed under him in that campaign. The force that resisted us did its duty gallantly, though it had everything in its favor. They knew what they had in their front, we did not. Still, they failed of their object, which was to save the train. That we captured after all. The Michigan men brushed the rear guard out of the way. The first Virginia gave the affair the finishing touch. Unquote. By the time the action had died down, it was nearly dawn. Kilpatrick worried that more Confederate cavalry or infantry might arrive soon. 
Their attack had carried them through the pass to the western side of South Mountain. The prizes were loaded up and his division marched towards Smithsburg to regroup. In fact, Kilpatrick's only major mistake was not trying to occupy Monterey Pass in order to block the advance of the bulk of Lee's army. Once his division marched southward, the road was again open to the rebel column. And that's where I'm going to leave off for today. In the next episode, we'll follow General John and Bowden's wagon train on their journey out of Gettysburg, the retreat of Lee's main body, Meade's pursuit, multiple cavalry battles, and the situation at Williamsport, Maryland. And as always, thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History.